I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Dr. Richard Newton, an assistant professor of religious studies at the University of Alabama. Dr. Newton received his PhD in critical comparative scriptures from Claremont Graduate University. His areas of interest include theory and method in the study of religion, African-American history, the New Testament in Western imagination, American cultural politics, and pedagogy in religious studies. His research explores how people create scriptures and how those productions operate in the formation of identities and cultural boundaries. In addition to an array of book chapters and essays, Dr. Newton has published in the Journal of Biblical Literature, Method and Theory in the Study of Religion, Religion Compass, and Religion and Theology, to name a few. He's a member of the International Scholarly Working Group, Culture on the Edge. His new book, Identifying Roots, Alex Haley and the Anthropology of Scriptures, published by Equinox, in the Culture on the Edge book series, casts Alex Haley's roots as a case study in the dynamics of scriptures and identity politics with critical implications for the study of race, religion, and media. You can learn more about his research and pedagogy at his social media professional development site, Sowing the Seed, Fruitful Conversations in Religion, culture, and teaching. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. From Chapart Books, 2019. For more, please visit our publisher's website, chapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash V-A-N-E-S-S-A two three C-A-R-L. Your support is greatly appreciated. For more information, you can also visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. So I'm interested in the way that people gather around and work through and identify and make sense of themselves through uh, text, cultural text that um, often we might use the label scriptures uh, as a way of sort of defining or redescribing them. Um, for me, scriptures are not just uh, important books or uh, pivotal texts, but they're the texts that people read that also seem to read them back. And so I'm interested in that process by which people find themselves and create texts that uh, do precisely that, and why is it that um, 
we seem so committed to working out through these media in whatever form they take that we appeal to them when we most need them and we appeal to them when we don't even realize um, and they seem to kind of persist in how we um, make sense of the world around us. I love that idea of them reading us back. Yeah, there's a, uh, there's a lot of literature um, and commentary about the sort of larger Africana, but also especially the African-American literary tradition in which uh, texts seem to have this, or appear to have this sort of agency, like the talking book, the, the sort of source that speaks back to the people with whom they engage, you know, the community that's committed to that text. Um, and, and this happens not only around books, but it also can happen in music and in um, the sort of subject of my most recent book, Alex Haley's Roots, it's talked about in terms of drums, like the talking drums, the drums used in especially West Africa that seem to, uh, or not just seen, but are, are used as modes of communication between tribes. And so there, it's, it's this idea that media can be vital to who we are and who we want to become. And I think the ways that we see that uh, across our cultural formations is quite fascinating and something to pay attention to because they're the very terms by which we not only um, try to make a difference in the world, but also make difference between ourselves uh, for better or worse. And so how did you find your way into this direction? Um, well, so my background is in the academic study of religion. Um, here in the States, we often use the term religious studies to talk about this. So, so my work focuses on how religion um, the history of religion operates as an example for us to understand how people do what they do, you know, how culture works. And so uh, at the University of Alabama, we talk about this um, in my department as the study of religion in culture, as opposed to religion and culture where it's separate. We think about religion as um, an example in which we see cultural formation really like almost in heightened ways, but also in subtle ways too, nuanced ways. And so my examination in terms of sort of the study of culture has really been, um, has really revolved around religion and specifically around uh, of, of text like, you know, that I often am referring to as scriptures. So my, my early work was on the Bible. I was really interested in biblical studies in the New Testament and how people made sense of the example of Jesus, but then moved toward thinking about that in a broader comparative perspective. Um, and just in terms of my own uh, examination of how this phenomena works, I started thinking about, well, how does this play in so-called secular contexts? And Alex Haley's Roots was one of those works that was on the bookshelf in my parents' house. It was one of those books that I was almost expected to be familiar with, even if I'd never read it. And I found that a lot of people have never read this book, weren't around to see the miniseries when it premiered, uh, even though it's sort of world famous and the like uh, for a certain generation but it seems to persist in terms of its appearance in references in other media and um, the way that people use that phrase roots to talk about themselves uh, and, and where they come from and, and needing to know where they come from to go where they, to know where they want to go. Um, and so I was like, well, that reminds me of these other examples of scriptures. And so I started playing with the, playing around with that and eventually wrote a book on it. Yeah. And that's coming out soon. Yeah. It is, yeah. August 15th is, is what I hear from Equinox Publishers, which is, which is great. Exciting. What are you um, working uh, on now? Sorry about that. What are you working on now? So I, I'm continuing to work on um, this notion of scriptures. That's going to be kind of an ongoing project. Uh, and I, I'm looking at various ways that different scholars have examined the notion of scriptures. 
so that's one project I'm working on. The other is uh, a larger um, collection of essays that helps us rethink religion, but starting with the experience of African Americans. So often when we talk about the study of religion, it, it quickly goes to like the world religions, right? The whatever number, whatever uh, sort of categorical framework, people want to talk about Christianity and Judaism and Islam and Buddhism and you name it. But what if we start talk about the history of religion starting with um, African Americans who had to make sense of this thing called religion in the new world, uh, almost by penalty of death, not almost, but actually by penalty of death. Religion has something to do with who they are and how they are being defined. And if they couldn't make sense of the rules around that discourse, they would suffer the consequences. And so there was no getting around understanding and conceptualizing and dealing with the importance and significance of religion. And so I have a series of essays that I'm collecting into a volume um, on the significance of religion. So it's tentatively titled Signifying Religion in African-American Worldview. A, a couple of things about framing the story. Um, in the United States, the narrative often goes that people from Europe in particular, but all over, have come to the United States or what became the United States looking for a better life. Like that's the sort of narrative that is mythologized um, among Americans as the nation continues. It's about this land of opportunity and an American dream. So people go from a place where they are having hardship and they look for new opportunities and chances and possibilities in the United States. Um, that the United States, its freedoms, its liberties, its story, its heritage, and its promise uh, is something that can be accessed and claimed by those who are willing to look and work for it. Um, this is the sort of standard narrative that we see in the United States. Um, it's quite old, it's uh, in terms of American history that is, and it continues in various variations or in various um, instances for different peoples and people. Um, the problem with that, is that dominant narrative, as many have, have, have acknowledged, especially Malcolm X, um, you know, the, the uh, Muslim minister, uh, civil rights leader, he said, you know, like Plymouth Rock, the place where uh, the sort of pilgrims of the United States, pilgrims of the Americas landed, Plymouth Rock didn't, you know, American, black African-Americans did not land on Plymouth Rock. Plymouth Rock landed on them, right? That they, African-Americans, the people know, come, who get come to known as African-Americans don't arrive in the United States by their free will. They didn't choose to come here. They were taken, they were stolen, they were branded quite literally and enslaved and brought to the colonies and to the United States in order to serve as part of its um, machinery, you know, like it to serve as its property, machinery and capital to be exchanged by um, owners here in the States. Uh, and, and this discourse happens because of racism, like racism becomes the vocabulary and grammar from which to understand how this works. Um, and in light of that, Black people have had to make sense of, well, how do they negotiate themselves within that vocabulary and grammar in that discourse so that they can, you know, in fact, sort of revolt, reform, um, take root in the United States. And um, this, we see this happen through the, the language of Christianity, which is, of course, is intimately part of the development of racism. And uh, Black people come to do this in ways that uh, radically change, in some ways, what the United States is and means for people, and what Christianity is and means for people, and religion and race in general, such that you can have 
you know, black people who see themselves as American. You can have black people occupying the White House as president. You can have um, black people as heroes of the nation and not just objects to be bartered. And uh, that sort of transformation uh, is an example that's not unique to the United States, but I would say is an example for how social formation and culture works. How can we take something that is oppressive and turn it into something that will work for us? Um, Chinua Achebe, the Nigerian author, said, uh, we will do things with the English language that people have never seen. He said this about African writers. We'll do things with the English language that people have never seen. And I think that's quite amazing, right? The idea that you can take a language that is seen to be out of your reach and make it your own and change the game in terms of how that language is further understood. Um, but this is how change happens, right? And I'm interested in the, the mechanisms and politics for such change because it happens, it's the history of humanity um, that the, the forces that oppress us become the tools by which we uh, become at home in the world if we live long enough to tell the tale. Yeah, that's a very good point. Will you say more about uh, Christianity and how it was kind of this hand-in-hand -hand tool of this oppression? Yeah, and, and, and I appreciate the question too because I think I could be misinterpreted as saying there's something definitive about Christianity that makes it inherently oppressive. And rather what I would say is there is something about how human beings interact that there's this potential for oppression and differentiation and stratification that um, involves politics that we need to pay, pay careful attention to to see how this works and why it works. Um, you sort of looking at the good, bad, and ugly of the things that we do to make sense of our lives. And Christianity um, being the sort of uh, the mode by which Europe, um, sort of modern Europe is making sense of itself and who they are and, and, and negotiating monarchy and negotiating institutional power and the like. It is uh, an interesting invention that is accessible to all of Europe um, despite Europe's, the European kingdoms um, having their own differences. So Spain and England and France can all agree that we have Jesus in common, even though they can be fighting for centuries. And so when I say that Christianity is inherent in racism, it becomes a sort of common vocabulary for Europe to understand itself as different from the people in these other parts of the world. Now, as they start to colonize these other places, and bring Christianity there and make Christians of these indigenous peoples, these dark-skinned peoples and the like, you still need language to differentiate them from quote unquote us, right? And you can't say, well, they're French. You can't say, well, they're British. But what you can, and you can't say, well, they're Christian because they are Christian too and we need to keep them different. What you can say is something like, well, we are white and they are not. So, race and Christianity begin to sort of work as a uh, common framework and sort of there's an ability to have a sort of back and forth there to start to parse out who people are and who people are not, who they can be and who they can't become. And um, that religio-racial story is what Judith Weisenfeld calls it, historian of American religion. That religio-racial story is worth paying attention to because it's the terms on which uh, markers of difference are mapped. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I love so, the idea of the religio-racial story. 
Yeah, and I think it's a it's a nuanced thing to to keep in mind in the stories of colonization and racialization because um, what we see and, and what I've seen in the United States and in some of my recent work is the way in which uh, sort of racist actions appeal to both Christianity and to white supremacy. And that is to say that it is unpopular since the, the civil rights movement in the United States to talk about white supremacy. It's not popular anymore to hold like scientific racism as the, the mode we go about making sense of the world. I mean, people still do it, don't get me wrong, but there's enough capital and alternative, the alternative and the critiques to that notion that you can't really get away with it in popular society without some sort of nuance, right? Well, what we see happening though is that when, rather than appealing to sort of white supremacist notions or scientific racism or, or other sort of framings of racial difference, um, one can justifiably appeal to Christianity and Christian virtue in order to exercise racist actions. So for instance, one thing we see in the United States after the civil rights movement is that our public schools, once they have to be integrated, it becomes the law of the land that schools must be integrated. One of the things we quickly see is the rise of Christian private schools where white people are taking their children out of the public schools because they don't want their kids to be in integrated spaces. And they say, well, I'm not creating an all white school. I'm creating a Christian school, right? And you see how that works. For right? those who can afford um, it. Exactly, for those that can afford it. And also, interestingly enough, if need be, there will be scholarships. And sometimes they're relatively cheap. It's just the, so, the, the way the capital is policed is often on lines that end up being racial, whether they uh, are purely economic or social or, or whatever, right? You have to be in the right neighborhood. It's gotta be close, you gotta know the right people. You need letters of recommendation, right? The machinery by which uh, social difference is adjudicated uh, can take all sorts of forms, but the end result often can be seen as being mapped on the color line. And um, so that's just one example in which we see that. Another example we see this um, that I'm sure your viewers and listeners will be aware of is the, the, um, the, the massive uh, histories we have of police brutality against Black peoples. Um, and one of the things that I have tried to document in some of my research is the way that in some of these uh, more visible uh, anti-Black police actions, we see testimony from um, police officers saying that the reason why they uh, ex you know, killed said Black person, used deadly force against this person was because the person appeared to be a demon. The person appeared to be a monster person appeared to be Satan, and I was scared for my life. And so once it's framed on um, Christian terms, biblical terms, then it seems okay for, or at least um, there's, a, uh, there's a sort of sense that it's, it is um, acceptable for that action to have taken course. And for that action to have taken course, and yet be on racial lines and part of a larger racist history that, um, that sees that black people are often positioned as enemies of uh, a police state um, and a white police state at that. Which is really clear right now. It is and it isn't, right? Because it's, it's not 
um, it's not easy and it's not popular to critique authority, right? Um, because I mean, we know this from all sorts of social theorists, but it's, it's difficult to do that also because I think part of culture, right? We see this in culture is we want to be secure. We want to be safe. And how are we going to be safe if we don't have people who are looking after our well-being, which we've, we've tasked that oftentimes with the police. Of course, there are teachers and doctors and other offices. We used to do that as well. But the police are ultimately, especially in the United States, the office seen as being able to protect the well-being of its citizenry. citizenry. And the problem with that notion, though, then is what happens when certain people don't feel as safe as others. And I think that's a sentiment felt by black people and white people and everyone else alike. Like that notion that maybe I'm not safe enough. For those who are in power and those who's, who are positioned socially to benefit from the state, well, the police can be an agent of assistance. Um, we'll help you feel safer. We will have more, more police officers, um, more weapons, more laws that will help us make sure that you are safe. However, if you are not uh, on the right side in the white side of the color line, you find yourself always raising a question whether you are the, um, going to be the, the face of um, unsafety or whether you're gonna be seen as one who's supposed to be served and protected by the police. Um, and, and you know, it's a complicated conversation to have, right? Uh, because, you know, not all, you know, like the, the whole, not all of us are bad, right? I mean, I, you see this being talked about of, uh, of any sort of social group that's trying to work through its politics. But the state and the, the social structuring and organization of how things are going in the United States make the individual actions negligible. You know, people get lost in the system. Mm -hmm. People are seen as data and number points not as individuals. Well, that's not true. Some people are allowed to be seen as individuals. Some people are allowed to be seen as safe. But it's like the, the famous George Orwell um, statement in Animal Farm, you know, uh, to paraphrase, all humans are created equal, some more human, some more equal than others. That's the problem that we see happening here, I think, in the States. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I was just thinking of Christianity and it's, it seems so dangerous to me because I'm a psychologist. And when mm -hmm. I think about things psychologically, I feel like the idea that like you have this one God and that it, it is the only right way and that all other ways are incorrect. And that you, and then especially to take that a step further that you have to then make sure you help everybody, help everybody else by changing them into your, into your way of thinking as well. It just seems so dangerous to me. And I, I feel like somehow this is similar to this police state as well, like they're related. Well, I mean, I think it's, um, again, like I don't think it's something that's peculiar or particular to Christianity. I think what we see in the history of religions is that these religions that we often you know, know what we think of when we think of the term religion, the sort of legacy and history they have is that they've all been um, frameworks for social, great frameworks for social organization, right? Like they've been able to um, convince, compel, and inspire people in great ways and have machinery attached to them to do it, right? 
You think about governments attached to some of these different religious traditions and the like. You think about the, the, the stories and mythologies that come from these traditions that get uh, repackaged and reframed and taught in all these different ways. Uh, I think what we, we see in Christianity is what we see in so many other spaces too, right? Is that tension. Like when, when you talk about danger, I think the way that I would frame it is dynamism, right? That sort of power, right? That power is uh, multivalent. It can be positive, it can be negative, depending on how someone observes the charge. And so the same Christianity that we can talk about having, you know, a, a single God and having provisions about who's in the kingdom and who's not is also the same social framework that talks about turning the other cheek and loving your neighbor as yourself and having, you know, a figure that dies at the police state, right, in the hands of the police state. Like, it's a weird story, right? Like, I, I often tell my students when I teach my New Testament class, like, how strange is it that the legacy of this tradition often involves people wearing um, around their necks, especially here in the States, especially here in the South, but all over, really, um, a, a charm necklace with a tool for um, execution, like the cross, the thing that killed the founder. Like that's weird. That's a, there's a lot going on there that needs to be unpacked. Well, I mean, I think the, the possibilities though for that story, that some who are lost can be found and some who have been persecuted can find their place in you know, the, the kingdom of God. Like there's a lot of power there. I mean, it's worth noting too, right? That as much as I've talked about this sort of what I've termed the Christian white imaginary in the United States, Christianity was immensely important and continues to be immensely important for civil rights of black peoples, right? Martin Luther King Jr. is a Baptist minister. Um, the, the seminaries that, uh, that um, many civil rights leaders and activists attended, right? These were workshops and spaces to develop a movement. Now, not it's not like Christianity had its monopoly on the civil rights movement. It wasn't a hindrance to, um, again, Malcolm X critiqued Christianity quite heavily. But the power of this tradition is also immensely important because it can go either way. And I think that's a, a, a lesson, a case study that we see emerge from starting with our understanding of religion from the perspective of African Americans, is that the thing that was used to kill them is also the thing they can use to find new life. Mm -hmm. um, as my, uh, uh, one of my former professors, Mon Dr. Monica Coleman says, she has a book called uh, Making a Way Out of No Way, which is a popular refrain among African Americans. Making a way out of no way. I mean, I think that's the story of, of Blackness, because that's what you have to do in order to make sense of a world that's so disorienting. A world in which what James Baldwin says um, is defined by a white racism in which whiteness isn't a phenotype. It's not about skin color. But whiteness is about a statement in which someone's security and dignity, or excuse me, someone's security and comfort is worth more than another person, a black person, a person of color's dignity. If that's the scenario you find yourself in, you will use whatever tool you can in order to find a way to, to get out of that no place. Um, and that can even be the very tool that oppressed you. So, I mean, like that's the, I think the sort of nuance that I wanna bring to our inventory of how religion and race works in the modern world because it's it's so complicated um yeah it's really when you're talking about the cross it, it's so interesting that you point out how it goes both ways so in one way like the way i saw i went to one of those christian private schools when mm -hmm. i was in elementary school um so i guess that's why i specifically focus on that because that's what i know um but i always when i kind of started getting older, I started thinking of like 
thinking of it in the way that, um, you know, here's this gift, right? God gave the gift of his son. Um, and then like, this is what people do with it. It was like, psychologically, like it, people can just like destroy anything, you know, it's like, you can give them like all these tools or like here, this is going to help you. And somehow we can just like totally pervert it or manipulate it or like turn it into something really problematic, like, like yeah. a tool of oppression worldwide. Um, but then on the other hand, like you're saying, then we can then take that tool of oppression and then turn it into something again, that's like serves us and like helps us to like find a way. So, so we can yeah. do it both ways. Yeah, and I, and I think what the, the, the shift that I try to have like readers and my audience and my students or whatever make, and the thing that I'm trying to remind myself of as well is, is as I think about social formation, I want to move past as much as possible thinking about the, the things that we create as being charged in any particular way. Like, you know, I... I can see a car, right? And that car can look like a vehicle of death, right? And we need someone licensed to use it because it's a massive two-ton vehicle that can do a lot of damage. We've seen in protests, uh, we've seen a number of times in the United States recently, last few years, where um, protests, uh, or people have used trucks and cars to drive over Black Lives Matter protesters, okay? So it can be a vehicle for, um, it can be a tool for, you know, harm. It can also be a tool that helps uh, bring about a change to which we are amenable, right? Many of those protesters arrived at those protests because they took cars, right? So do we, if we say cars are bad, we need to think about bad for whom, right? I think the starting place in our analysis might be, here's an object. Now let's try to get perspective on it. And I think psychology has actually been super useful in this regard, especially mod modalities like cognitive behavioral therapy, right? And the like, and, and there, of course there are other modalities to think about this, but helping people get perspective on the things for which they take for granted. And I think that's what um, I see my work trying to do is to help people get perspective on things like scriptures as tools that seem vitally important to us but we need to get perspective on how they're used and against whom they're used and for whom they're used and, and what do we do with them. Um, and when we do that, we can start to begin to see why the differences we make with it are often um, received so negatively by others, positively by some, negatively by others. They help some, they harm others. And like why that works and what might we do with it then. It helps us pay attention. Um, and you know, I can't say that my work is gonna change the world, but if it can help people pay attention then I am accomplishing what I set out to do. Yeah, and helping people pay attention is a, is a lot. <laughs> a lot, that's right, yeah. Like, I mean, I think there's an impulse, especially like with social media right now, to get on the record as being like a change agent. And I'm all for change. I'm all for making sense of what we can do to make the world a better place. But I think the place to start is to get some perspective on what we're looking at. And, and so I think about, you know, just in light of listening to previous episodes of your wonderful podcast, the ways in which people have um, used art and therapy and, and psychoanalysis and the like to help others get perspective. I think that's super important. And what I've tried to do in my work is think about the processes that keep us from getting that kind of perspective. That so often we, we take for granted certain ways that um, our communities, certain foundations upon which our communities are built. Like we take for granted our roots. And then we can't raise questions about them or step outside of them to look at 
for whom they're working and against whom they're working. Um, and that's why they're able to read us back, right? Uh, I want us to start slowing down, um, asking questions, asking different questions, even if it's at risk to ourselves. Um, because when we do that, we can, we can gain uh, a greater appreciation for the, the, the processes in which we're involved and engaged. Yeah, and I love the way you say, you say this. Uh, you research how uh, people create scriptures and how those productions operate in the formation of identities and cultural boundaries. Yeah, I, um, I'm part of a research group, an international collaborative called Culture on the Edge, which is precisely looking at this notion, um, to, to borrow from Jean-Francois Bayard, uh, that identity is sort of this illusion, right? It's a production in itself, but rather than thinking about identity, we look at operational acts of identification. And, and so in my work, what that looks like is, is looking at roots as something we create we take for granted, but rather that there are these processes behind them that we need to sort of unpack and understand. So in my work, I talk about looking at the ways um, people are uprooted from their sense of home or complacency, right? They're displaced, they're uprooted. How people route, like R-O-U-T-E, like route around, trying to make sense of their world, and sometimes they win and sometimes they lose, right? But they are, they're kind of wandering, right? They're in that liminal space, if you will. And then how they take roots, how they're able to find that sense of complacency, where they not only take things for granted, but rather um, they, they are able to build from somewhere and start to feel at home in the world and not out of place in it. And I see scriptures as being places where we can see those dynamics happening. Um, and I, I want to, I, I like to use the model of scripture or use the sort of notion of scriptures and roots to help me think about oh, what's really going on there? How might I re-describe this so that I can take stock of um, the good, bad, and ugly, the, the social politics at play, what are people benefiting, and, and what are people um, giving up, or how are people being harmed in the processes that uh, make us who we are and help us do what we do? I love that. Your work's so amazing. <laughs> I love hearing all about it. <laughs> Was there anything that you wanted to be sure to mention that we hadn't gotten to yet? Um, I, I would say just, uh, you know, I, I appreciate your, your viewers and listeners for, um, for all of their time and for uh, being interested in my work. And thank you for inviting me to your show. Um, my book, uh, Identifying Roots, Alex Haley and the Anthropology of Scriptures, is uh, available from Equinox Publishers. Um, and you can um, check out their, uh, check out the, the link to that, um, I'm sure, on your page and, and as well. And, and look at my website. My website sowingtheseed.org. And uh, there you can find out more about my research and teaching and uh, learn more about the book and other things I'm up to. I love that, sowingtheseed.org. Thanks. Yeah, it's, it's a project I've had. Uh, I, I started it when I was in graduate school. Um, the idea was to just have really a, a travel blog, like I was going to Israel-Palestine and doing an archaeology dig, I was working oh, with wow. like Maya, and my interest was in looking at how people uh, back then had like this uh, anthropological hermeneutic, this way of thinking about biblical texts through their own life experiences. And so I was like, if I could study with some Yucatec Maya farmers um, to understand how farming works, I could better understand this very particular passage in the New Testament called the parable of the sower. Um, and combine that with what I was learning from biblical archaeology and the like. And I would take a lot of pictures and write about my reflections while I was in graduate school on this website. Um, and so that 
was how it started. And then it morphed into this kind of resource for classes that I was teaching and then became a spot where I was able to include the work of my students and podcasts and blogs and video and other stuff that I use in my research and teaching and um, sort of public uh, scholarship. And uh, I, I think about it now as sort of like an online professional development network for people interested in religion, culture, and teaching. Um, yeah. What was your graduate program like? Uh, yeah, so, my, so I went to a seminary for my master's program. Um, and I was using that sort of as a jumping off point to doctoral work. And my doctoral program uh, was at Claremont Graduate University. Um, it was at a uh, program that extended from um, a sort of research center called the Institute for Signifying Scriptures, which was like a cross collaborative international group of scholars working on issues of scriptures and social formation, psychosocial politics and the like. And in the program, it was cool. There were people from all over the world looking at all sorts of different moments in history and dynamics. And um, I was looking at, I, well, I came to eventually look at African-American cultural history and sort of the history of the Bible, uh, particularly the New Testament and Jesus movement. Um, I was first interested in like historical Jesus, first century, like what did Jesus actually do? What was that world like? But I was free enough there to be able to look at what are people doing with that tradition and legacy today and how is knowledge formed and, um, you know, take classes in Islam and take classes in uh, cultural studies and, and the like and continue my work in cultural anthropology. And um, it, was a, it was a great place to be and there was never a dull moment. And uh, yeah, it was, um, it was, you know, it was super hard, but also good times too. Yeah, grad school is, it's tough, but worth it in the end. <laughs> I, you know, I mean, we, we struggle here in the United States uh, currently with a sort of malaise about higher education publicly. Like there's a sense that, oh, I can do whatever and I know whatever and what, what point is school, you know? And uh, sadly, our, our schools are very expensive and there are few and fewer teaching positions for um, scholars that are tenable. And so, you know, I, I, I think graduate school is a great opportunity, right? You think about social formation. I think about it as it's a great opportunity for those who can afford it and for those who want to learn what they um, want to learn. Uh, but, you know, as a telos, becoming a professor is becoming so difficult for so many. And uh, I, I really um, think that's something we've got to work on in this, this century is, is how to make, make sure that the university is a tool for for um, a tool that is an opportunity for all of those to learn what they want to learn. I tell my students in my class, never let anyone keep you from learning what you want to learn, including me. Um, and I may regret saying it right after I, you know, you know, make that spiel, but I, I think people should be, you know, part of our society. I think our society is at its best, maybe not its best for me, but it's at its best as a whole. Um, when people are able to raise questions freely, investigate answers to those questions and raise more questions. And I want the university and I want my classroom to be a space to do that. Um, and I've tried to do that on my website. That's my sort of little neck of the inter internet to, do, to, to sort of foster that. But um, I hope we can all find ways to create work that um, cultivates that same sort of ethos. Um, and I see you doing that on your podcast, which is, which is quite wonderful. Yeah, and like you said, the internet's a really great opportunity to be able to do that and to network and that's why i love having people from all different kinds of fields on to talk about their work because you can see 
how things cross pollinate or how people are thinking about things from kind of different angles or applying uh, similar fields, but in different ways or in different domains. Um, it's just yeah, endlessly it fascinating to me. Yeah, and it mystifies <laughs> some of the, the assumptions we make where we don't stay in that single field, right? Like I think when you stay in a single field, you're told you must read these books, you must know these thinkers, you must do this kind of work. But if you're able to look at what's going on elsewhere, you realize, well, there's other possibilities here that have always existed and actually exist for me too, if I can avail myself of them in the right conditions. And so why would we not want that kind of possibility and opportunity? Um, and I think that's super important for students at any stage to consider right like to get past the dogmatism of here's what you have to read like i really try to push back against the sort of impulse of you must read this book this is required reading this is and i hear people have said this of my work as of late which i'm super flattered by but also like i don't think anyone should have to read anything because that should have to read stuff is part of the same politics that we've been talking about with the history of uh the history of religion and the history of colonialism and also I know your, your guests have talked about it's part and parcel to traumas that we see in all, at every level of social formation and even individual psychosocial formation that, that we must do something or else is a, it's a symptom of um, social formation and cultural productions that have gone unchecked when we know that they are extensions and creations of ourselves. Um, so, so if we can create platforms where we're always able to examine and reflect um, and deconstruct that, I think we are, we are um, making, I don't know if I'm going to say progress, but we're, we're making more sense of what's before us and what we've, what we've created. Yeah, absolutely. And not trying to homogenize everyone and control them. That, that Murakami said, um, if everyone said, read the same books, everyone would think the same things. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, I think there's a, it, it's easy, I think I said this on Twitter recently, um, my PhD advisor and mentor, Vincent Wimbush, you know, he, in one of our graduate school seminars, you know, we, all the students came ready to kind of take apart something we had just read, right? We were gonna be so smart and dismantle it and take apart and show its shortcomings. And he said, you know, it's really easy for you to critique. You're never smarter than when you're critiquing someone else's work. What can you learn from the thing that's before you? And I have found that question to be so verdant and life-giving. Like, what can you learn from the thing before you? What can you learn from the person across from you? When we take that attitude to things, I think we realize very quickly we have a lot less to say because there's so much we can gain from listening and observing what other people have um, before them. And I think that's, a, uh, that's the posture that I think scholars um, should take, really, if they want to really be about this learning thing. Um, and at best, I want the people who read my work to raise questions, not only learn from me, but raise questions about it so that maybe the things that I've said begin to look obtuse. You know, that's my hope is that, that, that there's sort of a, as Kathleen Fitzpatrick talks about, a planned obsolescence to what I've done, that it will fall out of style and something new and greater and better will come and I will sort of fade it away. I think that's the, the best case scenario. Um, but to do that in community, I wouldn't have it any other way. No, it's Don't a beautiful point. And it's something that um, that I got really frustrated with uh, when I lived in New York and attending conferences and talks and stuff. I always kind of try to take that position. It's like, 
whoever's there like presenting there's always something to gain from it that you can learn I, I once read somewhere that someone said everyone you meet knows something you don't know and I think that's really important to keep in mind and I got really frustrated with like listening to these beautiful talks and like I don't have to agree with everything everybody says but there's still something I can learn from it and I felt like afterwards a lot of people would just like do exactly that like just tear things apart and find everything that was wrong and oh they said this but Lacan says this and you know like just like kind of making it all into arguments and really just like picking everything apart instead of kind of finding what you find useful out of it and what you can take away from it you know yeah and um you know there's so much there's so much of a story behind why those are the politics at play in those spaces, right? And I think we, the academy is at its best when it starts to reflect and examine on that too, to, to understand that the process is part of the product um, when it comes to knowledge. And I, I think that you, know, you even brought up the sort of economic angle to some of this. I think we certainly see that in the academy too about, you know, it's about uh, the scarce resource of jobs and grants and all that. And it's, it's, it's um, unfortunate because it gets in the way of the sorts of exchanges that I think we're all here for. Um, and, you know, we, we need spaces where um, it is okay to make mistakes. You know, I think being wrong is a, uh, I'd say it's an occupational hazard. It's just part of what we do. And we need space to be wrong and to, to deal with that wrongness, right? Um, I, there, there's an author, um, uh, she recently died, Joanna Cole, she wrote a famous kids series called The Magic School Bus. And it's about a teacher who's kind of out of this world and strange and uh, off, but she has this bus that's able to transport these elementary school kids to, you know, whether it's shrink inside the, the size of a cell to learn the body, you know, the parts of a cell or to be a space shuttle and go off into space and look at all the planets for the sake of a lesson and for the sake of learning and sort of refrain was to take chances, make mistakes, get messy. That is what the academy is for. The university is an institutional space where we can take chances, make mistakes, and get messy. The classroom is a small microcosm in which we can have that attitude and see what comes up, comes up it. And when we can do that in the confines of the classroom, I would think we have practice at doing it better in uh, outside of the ivory tower. If we can't take chances, make mistakes and get messy in the classroom or in the seminar and the symposium. We, we, are in we are in danger outside of the ivory tower because the ivory tower, I mean, should be the kind of space where we make that acceptable, where the question is clearly more valued than the answer. Now I think we see ourselves in a world, you know, in the 21st century, in the information age, where being right and being right to your audience is being prized in a way that is just heavily inflated. And it may work out well for some, but it's going to be catastrophic and is catastrophic for others. Um, and uh, I think that's what fake news is all about, right? It's about being able to present oneself as unequivocally correct. I, I fear that. I think that's part of what um, the need to erase people from public discourse is about, to be categorically correct. To, to, people are problematic, <laughs> right? I think what I've learned from my study of social formation um, and the so psychosocial politics of scriptures is that people are problematic. There's not a single 
EG or case study that we can look at that's not mired in the good, bad, and ugly of human meaning making? Why would we play it otherwise? Um, I want to create a space where we can do that. We're going to be offended. This is another thing I say in my classrooms. When we look at this stuff and when we talk about this stuff, we're going to be offended. It's our job in the academy, and I would hope to say it's our job outside of the academy to make sure that even though one may be offended, those who are at the table will not be oppressed. And in my classroom, I'd like to say there's an open seat at the table always. You may be offended if you come to it, but you won't be oppressed. And that's the work, and it's a hard work that's before us right now. And I think whether you're getting your news from your newsfeed on Twitter, or Facebook, or other social media channels, or through broadcast journalism, or through the newspaper, you can see example after example after example that we have our work cut out for us. That's so beautifully put. After having this opportunity to speak with you for this hour, uh -huh. I must say that I bet that your book is going to read in this scriptural way where it's going to talk and talk back because everything you say resonates so well and is so like spot on eloquently put. Well, what I hope happens is, you know, for those who are willing and able to make the time to read it, that they will have a sense of um, both nostalgia, not nostalgia, but recognition of, oh yeah, I've seen these politics or dynamics before, whether it's in Roots or some other example, but hopefully it's in other examples, right? I hope it gets us curious about where we've seen this kind of, uh, these scriptural social politics before, these root politics before, but also that it gets people talking and raising new questions that I've never thought about, and that get me to thinking about the next thing and getting thinking, people thinking and engaging about the things around them that matter most. And I, I mean, uh, if people forget about identifying roots in the process, excellent, because it makes more room for other exchanges. And I'm all here for the exchange and looking forward to sort of the fruit that it, uh, the, the fruit that comes from it. And I appreciate you for uh, tending and cultivating uh, whatever we planted here with our, our interaction. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Dr. Richard Newton. For more, please visit his website, sowingtheseed.org. You can also follow him on Twitter and find him at Culture on the Edge. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. From Chapart Books, 2019. For more, please visit our publisher's website, chapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l your support is greatly appreciated for more information you can also visit my website dr vanessa sinclair dot net 
or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Thank you. 